A year ago, the murder of George Floyd by a white police officer in the U.S. ignited a global movement against racism. Protests spread across the world, from London to Tokyo. But what happened to George Floyd struck a special chord with many Palestinians. His image was painted on the separation wall that Israel has built around the occupied West Bank, which cuts off Palestinian communities. Some compared Floyd's murder with the killing of an autistic Palestinian man, Iyad Halak. Israeli police shot Halak in Jerusalem's old city last summer. They said he was holding a gun, but this was never proven, and a weapon was never found. Halak and Floyd's deaths cemented a solidarity that goes back decades. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Black Palestinian solidarity isn't new, but today it's more widespread. Activists on both sides see a direct parallel between police violence in the U.S. toward Black Americans and the Israeli treatment of Palestinians. Today, I'm talking to one of those activists. My name is Karee Peterson-Smith. I'm the Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. He's the co-founder of Black Palestine, a national network of Black activists committed to supporting the Palestinian struggle for freedom. There is no real data on this, but you have been following U.S. discourse on Palestine and Palestinian issues for years. I have as well. And I feel like this is the first escalation of violence where I've seen this extent of discourse online, on social media, where people are coming out with statements, with explainer videos on Instagram and on TikTok. This has everything to do with us because none of us are free until all of us are free. Majority of those weapons that's used against those Palestinians came from America or was bought with American money. So this is anecdotal. But personally, do you see this as a watershed moment? Do you see this as something different than we've seen in the past? I do see this as a watershed. And I think that what's happening in Palestine itself is incredibly significant. And then I think that the conversation about it in the United States is different from previous conversations. There has been an amazing set of developments in this country in terms of Palestine solidarity, in terms of the kind of organizing that exists on campuses across the country in particular. So much has been done, I think, to disrupt the kind of standard official narratives around Israel. But I think the big thing, the big kind of context is the Black Lives Matter movement and how it has reframed things again for years, but in particular last year, was a year where we had Black-led uprisings. And the kind of what's now being called the racial reckoning continues to this year. How have you seen the Black Lives Matter conversation interacting with the discussion on Israel and Palestine? Well, I think that, first of all, it's worth appreciating what the conversation driven by Black Lives Matter is producing in this country. For years leading up to now, a whole set of understandings that previously had been quite marginal, things like intersectional feminism, conversations around mass incarceration, entered the mainstream, launched there by Black Lives Matter, right? 
So there's a widening and deepening conversation around racism in this country. And it centers on this question of what is society is investing its resources? That's like the, the, the main slogan of the, the uprisings last year was defund the police. If you've been to a protest or have been paying attention to the news lately, there's a good chance you've heard this. Defund the police. Defund police departments. Defund the police. What does that slogan signal? It's saying the resources of the society should not be invested in these forces that clearly <laughs> are, as a matter of daily practice, brutalizing Black people and, by the way, the protests that are calling attention to that. But also, we should redirect the, that, that, those funds into things like housing and healthcare and things like that. And so it's not difficult to look at that conversation, which, again, as part of it, there's an interrogation of white nationalism to look at all of that and extend it to U.S. foreign policy and see what the U.S. is supporting in terms of Israel, especially when the connection, the links between policing in the U.S. and Israel are so especially clear. One of the most significant moments, at least from my perspective, and looking back at that Black-Palestinian solidarity was in 2014. And it was during the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, after a young, unarmed Black man named Mike Brown was killed by police. How did Palestinian solidarity come into the picture then? So 2014 was an incredibly important moment, an important moment for Black America and the kind of freedom struggle here, an important moment for the Palestinian freedom struggle and an important moment for Black Palestine solidarity. We had the Ferguson uprising in response to the murder of Mike Brown and the murder of Eric Garner and a whole bunch of police violence at the, at the same time as this Israeli assault on Gaza. And when that assault happened, first of all, just visually, you could see the parallels. I mean, if you were watching the news, right, there was like this overlap where you'd see the reports from Ferguson clouds of, of tear gas in the streets shot at Ferguson's rebels. And then you would shift to Palestine and see plumes of smoke rising from Gaza after Israeli bombing. When Ferguson rose up, there were Palestinians who offered their solidarity in any number of ways. Palestine Ferguson, One is there were Palestinians in Palestine Ferguson who took to social media and tweeted words of encouragement and words of advice about how to deal with tear gas for people who had plenty of experience with it. And there were, there was not one, but two statements of solidarity from Palestinians in Palestine with the Black Freedom Struggle here in the U.S. And there were Palestinians and Palestinian Americans in the streets in Ferguson from the start who were on the ground and participating in that rebellion as well. Among the Palestinians on the ground in 2014 was Sandra Tamari. She was one of the leading organizers in St. Louis, Missouri, who mobilized a march in solidarity with protesters in Ferguson. We here in St. Louis took on the task of organizing a Palestinian contingent. We had huge numbers of Palestinians that came uh, together to demand that racism be ended from Palestine to Ferguson. The connections between occupation were cemented during that period. Sandra is the executive director of the Adala Justice Project. It's a small Palestinian advocacy organization based in the U.S. 
They work at the grassroots and congressional level to shift public discourse and policy on Palestine. She says, for many Palestinians, the sentiment is, no one is free until all of us are free. And it's why she can't separate other movements for justice from the Palestinian one. We're certainly seeing a narrative shift. I think that can be attributed in good part to how people in this country have been primed by the George Floyd protests last summer, how people have been primed by indigenous struggle, including that at Standing Rock and other pipeline locations. They have an analysis of state violence, they have an analysis of colonial practices, and they have an understanding of settler colonialism. And then when Palestine comes along, they're able to overlay that analysis and are now waking up to an understanding that this is not two warring sides, this is not two armies that are fighting one another, but really understanding the Palestinian position as a colonized people and their resistance as anti-colonial resistance. The groundwork for Black Palestinian solidarity had been laid long before. And some of the strongest support for the Palestinian movement has come from Black leaders and organizers. They were some of the leading voices during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So Malcolm X visited Gaza in the 1960s. You have Huey Newton of the Black Panthers. You had Stokely Carmichael, who during their times spoke out for Palestinians as well. Zionism is the baby, child, and infant protector of imperialism in the Middle East. It carries out the interests of American imperialism. So can you describe a little bit of that history and how you think awareness has changed over the years? So many of the activists involved really saw themselves in a global context, in the context of an era of decolonization. And so Malcolm X's trip was one in which he connected with Palestinians in particular and came into a a critique of Zionism in particular. But Zionism as a particular part of a colonial system that he was engaging with and it via a decolonial, anti-colonial, transnational struggle that Malcolm X saw himself kind of part of that struggle in the United States. And similarly with Martin Luther King, a framing is often that Malcolm X is the radical one and King was <laughs> the less radical one, but they both saw themselves in international kind of anti-colonial contexts. I know that you made your own trip there earlier in 2009, which actually happens to be the same year that I had the privilege of getting to to visit the occupied territories. Wow. Could you talk to me about what struck you about your visit? When I went, it was a unique trip in a number of ways. And I think the big way was that actually I got to go to Gaza, which has been largely closed off from the world physically by an Israeli and Egyptian blockade for years. And so I was tremendously privileged to to be part of this delegation because it was primarily Palestinian folks, people who were refugees from Palestine and Palestinian Americans. So there were people who grew up in Palestine and who had to leave and who were visiting home again for the first time in many years. There are Palestinian-Americans who grew up in this country and who had never been home. 
But for me as a U.S. citizen, it was a lot less difficult to access it. Because to be Black in the United States is to be part of a community that has been at the bottom of the society for 400 years. And to be reminded of that all the time. And there's tremendous isolation that comes with that. And then you find yourself in alliance with Palestinians and can be lucky enough to go to Palestine, realize that as a U.S. citizen, I am able to access Palestine in ways that most Palestinians cannot. It's such a shift because it's like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm used to being in the category of the oppressed and marginalized. And in this case, I actually have privileges. Israeli restrictions of access to and from the Gaza Strip have been imposed since 2006, but then tightened in 2007. Egypt also carried out a blockade on Gaza by closing off their Rafah border. This resulted in an ongoing land, air, and sea blockade. Not much makes it in, and almost nothing comes out. So getting into Gaza is no small feat. But the restriction and movement on Palestinians doesn't end there. For many Palestinian Americans who travel to Israel and Palestine, they often face long wait times, hours of interrogation, and invasive questions, only to be turned away. And sometimes it's even worse than that. I haven't been to Palestine in almost 10 years, and that's not by choice. That is because the Israeli state has banned me. I was not able to enter when I tried last in 2012. When I landed at the airport, I was asked the name of my father and my grandfather. Because they have Palestinian names, I was put into an interrogation room, questioned at least five times over the course of eight hours, and then declared a security risk and put into prison overnight until they put me on a plane back to the U.S. the next day. But Sandra did push back, and she tried to find out why she was banned. I went to the U.S. State Department. I went through my congressperson. I have not received any documentation. The U.S. government was in collusion with the state. When I called the U.S. Embassy, when I was sitting in the airport in detention, the first question that I was asked by the embassy staffer is, are you Jewish? And when I said, no, I'm a U.S. citizen, my family is Palestinian, he responded, there's nothing we can do to help you then. For Sandra and Khoury, a defining feature for both movements involves layers of privilege and perspective they each experience in their own way. For Khoury, Drawing parallels between Black Americans and the Palestinian struggle is pretty simple. Can you speak to some of the policies in Israel that you either witnessed or have learned about in your research that strike similarities for Black Americans? I would say there are policies and there are other forms of racism beyond the policy that are incredibly resonant when we talk about Black America and Palestine. In terms of policy, the level of incarceration of Palestinian folks is just astronomical. So many Palestinians have direct experience with prison either as 
people who have been incarcerated themselves or as family members. And that is, of course, also there's a parallel in Black America. In terms of policing, the U.S. police departments literally train in Israel with Israeli security forces. Also, beyond the policies, there are these other aspects of Israeli society that are very resonant, and in particular, kind of spectacular, violent racism. I remember one of the things that really struck me in 2014, when Israel was bombing Gaza. And you can see another rocket going in from Israel, slowly making its way. Jewish Israeli residents of these southern Israel cities who could see Gaza visibly from where they were, they actually set up lawn chairs and watched the bombings and would applaud when they saw the explosions in Gaza. We're on the top of a hill and I think you can probably see there are lots of Israelis gathered around who are cheering when they see these kinds of Israeli strikes. And it is. And that is so deeply disturbing in and of itself and also calls to mind lynching and race riots and these other uh, forms of racism that in anti-black racism that were spectacular, that were not only acts of direct violence, but the violence involves a spectacle and participating as spectators. You've mentioned in the past that your own journey to solidarity with the Palestinian cause was a bit of a lonely one. How did you come to this issue? I was very lucky to learn about Palestine when I was in high school from a history teacher who was sympathetic to Palestinians. And in his history lesson, Mr. Dugan came into class one day and said, today I'm going to tell you all why the Palestinians are so pissed off. He told us about how Israel was established. And he showed us the maps of the theft of Palestinian land. And before that, I had heard the official story that Israel was a land without a people for a people without a land. And so I decided that I had to, to research about it. And I didn't know any Palestinian folks, but knowing Jewish folks who very much supported Israel, I was told that I was supporting terrorists. And it made me take a, a harder look because I said, wait a minute. I, for me, it feels so straightforward to be with these underdog oppressed people, the Palestinians. And yet I've gotten this very angry response um, from people who I thought also believe, you know, in things like equality. So what is this about? What is this about? Yeah, it, it has, I've had the experience of a certain kind of isolation, but that's a, it's a, I think it's a pretty minor price to pay. Not only relative to the price that Palestinians pay, which is tremendous in ways that are hard to even describe, but also because what I gained was a whole outlook on the world to to find myself in solidarity with people who are not only oppressed, but who are resisting, who are fighting for their own liberation, and to be compelled to defend that, and therefore to commit to the principle of self-determination. What a gift. What an honor. Um, Take your time. What an honor. So, um, yeah, I, I'm just grateful to be in this struggle, to be in solidarity with, with Palestine. It has not only taught me about the richness and the history and the current 
reality of this community of Palestinian people, <laughs> which is its own gift, but it has revealed key things about the whole world to me and about how to change it and, and about the fight for not only Palestinian liberation, but human liberation and Black liberation. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Dina Kisve with Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilbey, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliay, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Finton is our story editor. And Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs>